This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. It is Thursday, March 19th, 2020, and Caesar is home. Welcome, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the Luke Thomas Show right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. On the show today, believe it or not, we've actually got a fair bit of MMA news. Um, I don't know how much of it was is real, but a fair bit of MMA news. We'll talk about what's going on with Kobe Covington. Michael Chandler, John Jones has some interesting thoughts on a potential fight with Israel Adesanya, so we'll lean into that. We are, of course, going to keep up our vigilant look into how the coronavirus is impacting um, all walks of life, but uh, we will have a fair share of MMA news today, so I'm actually pretty excited about that. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Happy, what day is it today? I've even lost track. It's Thursday, yeah? Man, you know what's interesting about living at home all this time? Because I usually work from home, but, you know, I had a structured routine and we would build our shows in a different way each day of the week when we were doing live three hours. So Friday's shows were always different, right? We did brawls deep, stuff like that. Just staying at home all the time, the days are just blending into one another. They don't have much of a difference, you know? Um, which can't be good, but it's, you know, what's happening is happening. You just have to sort of roll with it. Uh, okay. Well, let's get this started. As I mentioned, Aaron Bronstetter of TSN spoke to Dana White. And uh, he spoke to him about a number of different topics, you can well imagine. So Cobb pulled this audio for me and tells me that this is just... You know, here's what we normally do. You know, normally what we do is... We don't pull the person's question because it's not really all that relevant for the, our purposes. It may or may not be all that valuable. We usually just pull the person's answer. But apparently, these questions are so good and so important to hear in relation to Dana White's answers that we actually are going to give you both. So I told this to Aaron Bronstetter last night. Shouts to him. What a great guy. And this is about everything. What the UFC tried to do in Brasilia a bit of a look ahead, you know, a nice mix of everything about sort of where, where we are with the UFC right now, state of things, all right? With that in mind, let's sort of get this going here if we can. And the question here apparently is, what was the, what was the risk assessment that the UFC took to move ahead in the way that they did? Let's see what they have to say. So you guys were looking to continue events for as long as possible. What kind of uh, work was done to weigh the risks? The risks, obviously, uh, one of the fighters coming in contact with the coronavirus and potentially carrying it uh, asymptomatically, and the reward of being able to provide entertainment to the public and uh, you know being able to provide to your broadcast partners. How how was that risk weighed? Listen, we we. Health and safety is always an issue with us. You know, a lot of these different businesses don't deal with this type of stuff. We deal with it every day. You know what I mean? We, we have the best and the brightest. We have these doctors, um, you know, who, who work with the athletes every day. And we have doctors who work with our staff, too. So, you know, health and safety isn't something new for us. It's, it's, it's something we live with every day. And it's something that we think about and are focused on every day. Um, also, 
solving problems and, and craziness happening is, is all part of this business. So this is this is nothing new for us. Was there an answer there? <laughs> I sure as hell didn't hear one. He's asking about the particular risk assessment of this, not whether or not health and safety is a priority for the company. Look, give the UFC credit, right? They are good about, in terms of MMA promotions, probably the best maybe historically ever in terms of health and safety. I don't think that's any kind of exa exaggeration, but that's not what anyone's asking here. Uh, they're asking about this unique threat, about this particular threat, and about what responsibility they had in maintaining public health while trying to weigh their business concerns. The business concerns are not irrelevant. Dude, there's going to be a lot of businesses that suffer. I, I, it's not an irrelevant concern. It's just it's hard to make a case that it outweighs the public health when you could be subjecting your fighters, your, ath your uh, uh, staff, television staff, Brazilian commission crews to everything. It's just a hard argument to make that that is the thing you should do if, in fact, you do take health and safety seriously. So if you take health and safety seriously, that's fine. But what does that have to do with this particular threat? Oh, well, if they take health and safety seriously, they'll take all health challenges seriously. I don't think they took this one seriously, which is why Aaron Bronstetter asked about it. Now, I love this. Was there any type of screening done for the athletes in terms of COVID-19? Was there any sort of screening this past weekend for coronavirus uh, among the athletes? Um, no, there wasn't. There was the same stuff that's going on, uh, you know, that they tell you to do. You look for the symptoms in people. And obviously these fighters go through a ton of physicals and medicals before they, uh, you know, before they compete. So no, <laughs> no is the answer. No, there was not any screening for it. Yes, they go through a series of other medicals. That's all true, but not anything related to this. They're just trying to pretend, oh my God, if we just do a bunch of other tests and a bunch of other screenings not related to COVID-19, it'll all kind of take care of itself. No, it doesn't. It's not how any of that works. It's not how any of this works. <laughs> no is the answer. No. They weren't screened for shit as it relates to COVID-19. No. And and then looking for symptoms, as, as has been reported, actually, I, I tweeted it out. You can check it out at L. Thomas News. We all know this. You can give COVID-19 when you're pre-symptomatic. Uh, and also that it turns out that your chance of spreading it, there's some indication now that it might be higher than before, than, than by the time you actually get it. So the answer is no. The answer is no. Um, so Bronstetter has an interesting question here. Let's say the CDC didn't give you a bunch of uh, requirements. So what would happen? Would you all have kept going? Here's what he says. So give me an honest answer here. Had the CDC not recommended that mass gatherings of 10 or more people uh, not happen and it was still 50 or more, would there be an, an event this coming Saturday? Of course there would. And we followed and complied all the rules. Every time they came out and said, no, I can't remember what the first what number was. Then the second number was 50. So we figured that out. And then once they got the 10, we're good. But yeah, we can't pull that one off. You know, it's just sort of stunning to hear. It's like, look, it's true that legally speaking, the only obligation that the UFC has at this point is to obey whatever the government recommendations are. And I'm sure that the UFC is all like in terms of being in compliance with what the government is asking them. I am certain that they're very good about that. They're very good about understanding the way to foster a healthy business climate over the long term 
is to make sure that you are in compliance with what state and federal authorities uh, are demanding of you. And they have been historically very, very good about that for the most part, I think. Um, yeah, no, in, in totality, they've been very good about that. But that does not mean we are, if, if your sense of what your responsibility is to not contribute to a pandemic or your full sense of what is and is not healthy is defined by the minimum standards that government set, you are not fully committed to the health and safety of anyone, much less your athletes. The government standards are the bare minimums that they place to force social change and behavior. But that has nothing to do with whether or not you could reasonably get yourself sick, get others sick, and then in turn get those other people who come into those people, come into contact with those people sick. Right? So we have gone on. Understand what they're saying. The UK, as we, I, and I'll put the, I'll, I'll cite this for folks who want to see it. The UK's death curve, uh, in terms of its steepness, when it was at the same point in, in its outbreak relative to Italy, Iran, and China, the death curve is already steeper in the UK. It's already, now it could flatten out, but as it stands today, it's steeper. In part because of this effort by the Johnson government to, you know, get early on herd immunity, whatever, different conversation for a different time. But understand what he's saying there. We would have gone ahead, potentially had no COVID-19 testing of any kind because that's not at this point mandated. I mean, how can they mandate something when the tests are not widely available? They can't force you to do something that they can't even provide, right? We would have just gone ahead with it anyway. I mean, you, you, you can't have it both ways, right? Either you are committed to the health and safety of athletes and you understand that in these unusual uh, circumstances that some proactive behavior and some uh, private, essentially corporate behavior is going to be required to meet those standards, or you're just going to lean on again what the government asks you to do and say that that's enough. Well, legally that's enough, but that's got nothing to do with whether or not that is ethical, and it's got nothing to do with whether or not that is in keeping with the highest standards asked related to health and safety. Aaron Bronstetter from TSN does such a great job of holding authorities' feet to the fire, but he never comes across as, you know, banging his fist down on the four mica and asking to see the manager kind of thing. And then, it, which you know, there's a place for that too. But he just has a nice, easy way about the, uh, the the processes by which he goes. So let's keep it rocking. Previously, he discussed, you know, if the CDC hadn't basically issued guidelines about you know, people can only be in groups of ten or less. Would you have kept going? Dana says yes. Um, you know, if uh, were there any screens for COVID nineteen? We had to give a roundabout answer, but the answer is no. You know, and how did they weigh the risks? He doesn't even answer the question. So let's keep this going. Is he trying to circumvent the government to hold Khabib versus Tony? That's an interesting one. Let's hear about that. So if you're trying to follow the lead of the government, why try to circumvent them by doing the events on tribal land? Well, we didn't circumvent them. We, we talked to them. All of them were in the loop. They were in the loop on everything that we were doing. I would never go do something without checking with the athletic commissions first and making sure that they were okay with it. I'm not entirely sure what that means. Um, I mean, they... I guess he's saying... Uh, we might hold we might hold a show on a Native American reservation, or we might hold it, you know, in Siberia or wherever, uh, 
But if that got us in trouble with the Nevada Athletic Commission, we wouldn't do it. So we've been checking with him. Maybe that's what he means. In which case, again, when it comes to legal compliance, I don't really have any questions about whether the UFC does what they're supposed to. I mean, because they you get your license pulled, the show's over, right? At that point, you're not doing anything anymore. So I don't I'm not so much worried about that. And that would be, yes, an extra level of screening that they would go through, or or I guess you should say the the minimum, because if you don't do that and then you get your license pulled, well then the whole thing goes, you know, tits up. But okay. But here's the issue then. Right, the issue becomes whether or not, yes, you're in compliance with the government, but it just has this weird feel like in the old days when the UFC or any promotion couldn't get a show going in the place that they wanted to, the commission wouldn't do it. Hang on here, hang on here. There we go. Uh, the commission wouldn't do it. Um, they would just go to another one. You even saw this with Margarito and Pacquiao. Remember New York wouldn't license him, so Bob Arum just took the fight to Texas because of his eye issue? You know, you see that kind of thing. It's called commission shopping. Now, this is not the same as a commission saying, hey, we're looking at these two fighters. We're looking at the competitiveness of this. We don't think it's competitive. There's a medical issue with a fighter we're concerned about. It's none of that. It's a condition that's suppressing essentially any kind of public interaction. And so that's not the same as saying what you're trying to put on, there are just not enough um, safety protocols as it relates to this individual matchup of the fight. And if you were talking to other commissions, that is a level of security that I think should be noted. But the weird effect of, hey, we're trying to go to this place, we can't get it done, so now we're going to try and take it to this place to get it done. Now we're going to try and take it this place to get it done, and we're going to end up in Native American territory, which is, by the way, where they were headed. Not for Khabib Tony per se, although they might end up there as well, but for some of their other fights, uh, it just has a weird feel where it's not the same as saying the fight we were trying to put on was unsafe in and of itself, um, but it just has this weird look, this historical echo of, well, we can't get it done in this government territory, let's just go to another. It's weird. With the athletes, if they were going to compete this uh, Saturday, would you have tried to put in place some sort of mandatory quarantining after the event for 14 days so that they wouldn't be able to perhaps come in contact with other people? I have no idea. I mean, I don't know. I I, I have no idea. Um, It didn't happen. So, you know, what, what we did is, just like I did with all of my employees, if any of our athletes, first of all, you know this, you've been around the sport long enough, all of our athletes have health insurance. But in these crazy times, I'm... I'm they do not have health insurance. They have accident insurance. Big difference. Hearing that, you know, hospitals are backed up or whatever. If any of my employees or any of my guys need help, we're here for them. And, and I'll do everything. Well, yeah, they don't have health insurance. They have accident insurance. There's a lot that accident insurance does not cover, to my knowledge. And I'm happy to be corrected on this. But to my knowledge, if you, um, if you have – if you get sick – you know, just out in town normally, and you need some kind of medical intervention as a consequence, the accident insurance policy does not cover that, which, you know, doesn't need to. It's an accident insurance policy, but that's not the same as saying health insurance. They don't have health insurance. I don't think you can go and get your wisdom teeth pulled um, or glasses by virtue of the uh, accident insurance policy if, you know, you just, you you don't have any injury. You just have naturally deteriorating oral or um, ocular health, right? Uh, And again, about the quarantining, 
It's like, I don't even know if Dana's allowed to do that. But what I do know is if health officials wanted it, that would be a part of it. And it, you can't say you're doing effective screening without some level of that. Because here's the basic situation. Whoever's in charge of the quarantining is a different answer. But somebody would have to be. And I don't think UFC could be in charge of that. But the issue is this. If you're going to not do effective COVID-19 screening, and then on top of it, you're going to expose people potentially to it. Remember, they're all pre-symptomatic here. Then uh, after it's over, if they've traveled internationally and they've been around populations and they've been immunosuppressed because of cutting weight, some level after that exposure is going to be required to quarantine them. And that can either be done with some kind of health organization, health entity, self-quarantining to a degree um, might work in certain cases, but um, it's not enough. It's not enough. Uh, there has to be some kind of oversight of that process. Otherwise, those people might get other people sick. And uh, even if they're not sick, even in the process of going home, they could get sick. So there's lots of different ways in which you're exposing people to people who've been uh, might have it, um, or you're exposing the public to people who, on your end, might have it. There, ha there, there was, this is what I mean when I say it's messy and it's complicated. There's all different kinds of processes that have to be in place to ensure the health and safety of athletes in an outbreak. Normal standard procedure is simply not enough. All right, uh, was there any type of mandatory quarantine plan? Da da da. What about Khabib versus Tony? What about it? Let's hear what he has to say. It's loaded. So UFC 249, knowing what we know today, do you feel that this event is definitely going to happen on April 18th? What percentage would you give it, give it that it happens on that exact date? Listen, again, 10 days ago, I'd have, I'd have told you things for sure. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of rolling with the punches here and have been since the beginning, you know? Um... I don't know. I, I can't honestly answer that question for you. Okay. I actually appreciate that because I think that's right. If you have to ask me in 2021, is Khabib versus Tony going to happen? I would say I'm still very optimistic. I'm still very optimistic that it's going to happen. We're, we're going to see it. It's going to be good. Uh, but I don't think there's any way it happens on April 18th. Now, I saw some article, uh, I think it was on MMA Fighting, Cobb. Cobb's watching here on Skype. Let me pull that up if I can. Uh, let's see. Da -da -da. Where he says, do you want to bet against me on UFC 249? We're looking at a lot of different things. Uh, but obviously, listen, you know, if you're a fan, a media member, or whatever you might be. Oh, this is it. That's you want to bet against me? You want to bet that I can't pull stuff off? I mean, at some point, you stop doubting me, I, I, I would imagine, but maybe not. It's not a matter of whether you can, although the, obviously that is also a major consideration, but putting that aside for the moment, it's a question about whether you should. Given who you could expose to this very serious condition, and given who could then get exposed to them and so on and so forth in the middle of a global pandemic. Is it even responsible to do that? And I don't know how you can argue that it is. There might be some kind of circumstance, because I saw Adam Silver, the NBA, saying 
they're exploring the possibility of exhibition games. And he says what that might mean is we're not really sure. He's basically wondering, is it possible to get like a pickup game between athletes who've already been screened, who've been living under you know some kind of social distancing, self-quarantine policy, to get together and just play you know two-on-two, three-on-three, something like that, stream it, have the fans pay attention. Is there some kind of way to do that? And the answer probably right now is not, but maybe if they get more clever about it, if tests become more widely available, maybe that could happen. This is my point. Is that going to happen before you know, April 18th? I have my doubts. The peak for NYC to reach maximum infection rate is somewhere around 45 days from now, right? I mean, it's more or less May. It's just not realistic, man. It's not, it's not a matter of does Dana have a private plane and a lot of money and an army of doctors and matchmakers on call 24-7 and good relationships with venues everywhere. All those things are true. All of them are true. But if the government is going to be dealing with a once-in-a-century pandemic, uh, simply the, the, the normal course of life will not be available to you in any capacity. And then even if it kind of was, is that a good idea? Seems like it's not. Seems like it's really, really not. And by the way, we were, we were killing the mainstream media on, I think, Monday show. No, Tuesday show, Cobb. When they were uh, like, well, NFL free agency went forward. Does this set a bad tone in the middle of a pandemic? And it's like, dude, wait until, wait until a month from now. Let's see how bad it is then and whether or not it sets a bad tone to try and put on sports in that kind of a, uh, a time frame. The answer is it may or may not. I don't know. But let's just see. All right, uh, we have one more here, I believe. Are they looking for other destinations for Khabib, Tony? Let me hear. So I guess he was asked, Dana was by Aaron, you know, what are your, um, what's your like TV slash book slash movie recommendations for quarantine time? Like, you know, how do you, how do you manage all of this? Uh, and this was his answer. All right, Dana, we're going to play a little game. It's social distancing with Dana White. You know, home, I'm at home. Our viewers are looking for something to, to fill the time. So give me a movie. What movie would uh, you recommend to our viewers? Let's go, let's go TV first. <laughs> UFC Fight Pass has a fight this Friday night from, uh, from England, and there's tons of content on there. Or if you, if you want to get into a TV show while you're on this, I would suggest Sons of Anarchy. Movie. All right. Um, if you've never seen the movie Vision Quest, I am a huge fan. He recommends Sons of Anarchy. Cobb, thumbs up, thumbs down. Are you a Sons of Anarchy guy? Just thumbs up, thumbs down. You are? I can't hate on it because I've never seen it, but you guys know my rule. If it airs on network television, you can go F yourself. And if it airs on cable, I'm willing to give it a shot, but there's very few that are good from just pure cable. And his movie is Vision Quest, which I also like, but I don't know if that'd be my one movie to like take with me. To the, you know, quarantine. Vision Quest. I, I, I think. That- Hang on. We're working through the audio here. Let me try it one more time. All right, Dana, we're going to. In the movie Vision Quest. I am a huge fan of Vision Quest. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's a very inspiring movie. It, it's, it's all about the meaning of life and creating. Um, you know, achieving goals and doing great things uh, while you're young. 
And uh, I love that movie. All right, give us a book. I don't like books. I don't read. (laughs) I will never get over that. I will never, ever, ever get over that. Oh, that is just too good. That is. I don't like books. I don't read. Oh. <laughs> oh man, Dana, what is your view about uh, mathematicians struggling to solve Fermat's last theorem? I don't like books. I don't read. Yeah, is that true? <laughs> uh, yeah. Dana, are you more of a gay science or thus spoke Zarathustra reader of Nietzsche? I don't like books. I don't read. Yeah? That's so? That's funny. Uh, are you more of a Martin Buber or a Michael Foucault kind of guy? I don't like books. I don't read. Uh, you know what's interesting about the quote is like he says, "I don't like books. I don't read." Like, like, not only do I not like books, motherfucker, I don't even like reading. Period. I don't like looking at the. I don't even like reading comic books. It was what I would glean. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but am I allowed to glean that from this? The dude says he doesn't like reading straight up. Listen to that. I don't like books. I don't read. I don't like books. I don't read. (laughs) Oh, God, that is too much. That is too much, man. That is awesome. Oh, God, that is awesome. Wow. You know, that is just the best. I don't even know. I honestly cannot believe that. That is just... You know. I don't like books. I don't read. <laughs> uh, I, you, you'll, uh, look, you'll hear me say many things, but you'll never hear me say that. Wow. That is great. That is too much. The Luke Thomas Show is your one-stop destination for MMA. If you're in a UFC title fight and you get finished in the first round, yo, you lost. Sports. I cheer for loser teams. As well as pop culture and entertainment. No matter what Star Wars comes out, I'll just find a way to like it. No. The Luke Thomas Show, weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. On your home for combat sports. Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156 and the Sirius XM app. Now included free for most subscribers. Colby Covington, he has apparently apologized to Dustin Poirier, and they have since uh, squashed their beef. So here's what he said, quote, we can't do anything at American Top Team. That's a place of business. That's a sanctuary, and we respect the rules uh, of American Top Team. By the way, this might come to us from Submission Radio, one of the two. Uh, respect the rules of American Top Team. So we've decided to put the beefs aside when we walk into American Top Team. We keep everything business. You know, I can't say what's going to happen in the streets. He'll probably run from me and run home. I think he's talking about... Uh, oh, no, sorry. He's talking about Dustin Poirier. Uh, I can't say what's going to happen in the streets. He'll probably run from me and run home to Louisiana. We know he's running from me in the octagon. He ain't never going to try and fight me in the octagon. That's what makes this whole thing stupid. He's a lightweight washout. And he's trying to call out the greatest welterweight of all time, me, myself. 
The whole thing from the start is just fake news, and it makes no sense. The guy needs to stay in his lane, understand his role, act like a B-level, uh, B-job level fighter, and just know your role, bitch. I'm the top of the mountain right now in the welterweight division, and I'm what's saving the UFC. Now, I think that was an old interview there. However, this is it. Yes, yeah, so let me correct this. That, what I just read you was a quote from an old interview. I think one from ESPN. The new one, now that I'm figuring this out in real time, is from Submission Radio. This is the new tone that Colby Covington is striking. Quote, I want to take this moment, guys, to apologize real quick. I want to apologize to my teammate, Dustin Poirier. I broke a promise to my agent, Dan Lambert, and I really do feel bad and I feel ashamed. Yesterday, I was asked a question by Errol Hawani about Dustin, my teammate, and I kind of lost my cool. I was too busy spitting fire on, on the world. And I was so hyped up about the Woodley fight that I kind of went off on Dustin. I just want to say that I'm sorry, Dustin. You're still my friend. We can be friends. I'm sorry about hurting your feelings and saying some words in the past that might have hurt your feelings. And you know, business goes back to usual at American Top Team. He continues. I want to have a civil gym. And I don't want there to be drama or beef in the gym. I want to keep things civil. And if there are any of these guys that want to come fight me, anybody out there, you know where to find me. We can fight for a lot of money in the octagon. But why aren't these guys talking about fighting me in the octagon? They keep talking about fighting me in the street. He goes on to say, yeah, I never apologize, and I can't believe I'm doing it here today with you guys. But you know, that's how much trust I have in you guys and faith in you guys. And what made me want to apologize is I'm really apologizing to Dan Lambert. I broke a promise. We made a promise that, you know, he's in a different weight class. He's a lightweight. I'm a welterweight. Our business and our paths are not going to cross. So there's no reason to talk about each other. Let's keep everything normal at the gym and guys can interact and train and they can hate on each other, but we have enough space in the gym where there shouldn't be any problems. Let's just handle our business. And I broke that promise with Dan and I told him that I wasn't going to talk about Dustin. He's not going to talk about me and I'm ashamed, man. I'm usually not like this, but you know, I'm a man uh, to admit when I'm wrong and I'm wrong. I made a mistake. I'm just like every other American out there. We make mistakes and the most important thing is we learn from them. And I've learned my mistake. I'm going to be better. I'm sorry, Dan Lambert. I'm sorry, Dustin. Love you guys. American top team forever. Now, there's much more that's said there, but you get the basic gist at this point. And folks have asked me, you know, is this a good move? Is this a bad move for him? On some level, I never know how to answer that, right? Because, like, I don't know what you want for your life, man. You know? Um, perhaps it's impossible to answer any of these questions without really knowing what they want, what the end goal is. And what matters to them, if you know what matters to them is maximum chaos, and what matters is this, you know, just just firing the AK forty seven on the block during the driveway, uh, drive by, excuse me, and yeah, yeah, you might hit a couple of buds, you might hit a couple of crips, but you hit grandmas, you hit dogs, and everything else in between. Maybe that's your goal. Maybe you just don't care. I don't know. I don't know what the, I don't know what the goal is. If the goal though is to be more strategic. And to be more thoughtful and perhaps clever about it, then yeah, I don't know that the way he's been going about it is the right way. Like, on some level, anybody who's been a heel just didn't have, uh, such as you want to call them that, whether they were playing characters where it was just who they were, they didn't have just maximum antipathy for everybody at all times. Right? I mean, there was, there was differences. They might have, uh, to me, they really focused their antipathy. They focused what they were doing. And there were times when they tried to get the crowd on their side or, 
certain kinds of crowds on their sides. I mean, there was just a there was just a level where they were trying to do things to piss people off, and they were trying to do things to get people to like them. And you could say, well, Colby's not been that way, but that's really not true. I mean, this is why I keep talking about the MAGA stuff that he does and why it's so uniquely different than what everyone else is doing. Two things that it accomplishes to recap the point. One, it casts a much wider net than what can be wrangled inside MMA. Inside MMA is, I would argue, a fairly pro-MAGA territory, but even then there's a lot of people that wouldn't necessarily uh, go along with it. Instead... This whole, like, becoming an icon and a mascot for the Trumps or the MAGA movement or people who identify with those political identities and causes, it, it, it's like a bat signal to them. That, like, here's a guy who not only shares your views. I mean, there's, there, there's for example, there's people on the Washington Nationals who share Donald Trump's worldview. You know, when they went to the White House after the Nationals won the World Series, and they were very complimentary of him in ways that could not be mistaken as just generic talk. You know, they, they, were, they were, Kurt Suzuki was one of them, and um, and there were some other ones. But the point being is, they don't quite make themselves out to be like hardcore, red hat wearing, Trump Pence shirt wearing mascots. So he, he serves as like a bat signal to these people. Like, I'm not only one of you, I'm unabashedly one of you, and I'm going to carry that flag in a way that people are just, are not, and I'm going to win fights, and this is going to be a really interesting dynamic. That's going to get a lot of people who are on that side of the political aisle or identity aisle to like him. Conversely, for the people who don't like that, that's going to serve as a repellent, right? So you're already, number one, casting a wide net beyond just MMA, and two, you are both getting people to hate you and getting certain people to like you. It's actually not maximum offense, so to speak, at all times against everyone. And I think there's another component here, just a real-world component, which is, dude, Dan Lambert, the owner and proprietor of American Top Team, bro, he's got a business to run, man. Dude's got a business to run, and it's so big, I think he's smart enough to realize, Dan's a smart dude, man. I think he's smart enough to realize it's just not realistic that we're going to be able to have a gym with these many guys who, by the way, it's not just that you have a lot of MMA fighters. You've got a lot of super high-level MMA fighters. You've got a lot of super high-level MMA fighters all in the same organization and then many in the same weight class. Eventually, some of them are going to cross paths with each other and not in a good way, not in a training partner kind of way. It's going to happen. It's just inevitable. And you know, finding some kind of way to manage that reality with the other reality that um, while the business needs you know, to run on the promotion side of things, the facility, facility needs to run on the other side as well. And so, dude, I think he probably put his foot down with these guys and said, man, you know, look how much leash I am giving you. Look at how much leash I am giving you, Colby Covington, to, to beef with Jorge Masvidal. You want to do that to the cows come home? Do it. Two rules. Number one, it sounds like what he has said was, don't do it in the effing gym. You want to walk into this gym. Everybody here is safe. This has to be a safe training environment. And two, better be in your goddamn weight class. Right? And I think those are pretty fair rules, man. I think those are pretty fair rules. And if Colby Covington is bending the knee, which I'm not saying in some kind of obsequious way, but rather smart way... Um, it's worth taking note of that. In the end, Dan Lambert's the boss over there, man. 
And you want to leave American Top Team, it's not to say you can't thrive elsewhere, but you know, there's not a lot of good there's not a lot of gyms on par with what those guys are doing. So I'm actually happy to see this from Colby. I think not that it's gonna change a bunch of people's perceptions, because the people he's allowed to beef with, he basically still will, I think. Um, so it's not it's not really a function of that. But but rather that um one, I like Dustin Poirier as a person. I don't want to see him getting these like, you know, toxic, unnecessary beefs if if there's a way to avoid it. And I like Colby too. But I think I'm happy to see it because um you know, if you're just out there to sow maximum chaos in your life, then what's eventually going to happen is everything you've built that makes your success possible will be undercut, right? Everything you have built to get yourself to this position, you're going to set eventually, if you just keep going, you're going to set all of that on fire. You know, what is the point of that? What is the value in doing I mean, what could possibly be the value in doing that. I just don't understand. So having some discretion about which way you point the gun, it matters, right? You got to be a bit of a sniper and less just a gangbanger with an AK-47, the Andre Karolinko, running down the uh, the block, just shooting everything that moves. You, you got to be a strategic businessman, not just a vandal. And I think for a time there, Colby was getting a little bit into vandal territory. But it looks like he's had the good sense to, to maybe get out of that at least temporarily, uh, and I think that will serve him better, frankly, you know, a little bit in the long run. If you don't know SiriusXM, then listen up. Commercial-free music plus sports, comedy, talk, and news—they have it all. And right now, you can get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for just one dollar. Go to SiriusXM.com/busted to see offer details and to subscribe. Offer available to new SiriusXM streaming subscribers. SiriusXM, no car required. So let's get on with this if we can. Uh, Kind of interesting. Michael Chandler, Michael Chandler of all people, is hunting free agency. Can you believe that? The guy has been in MMA for nine years. And to me, he's not Bellator's most successful fighter, although certainly one of them. But he is... um, you know, he's an important component of what they do. He's somehow the poster boy in certain ways, and maybe he shouldn't be, but he is. Nice guy. When I say he shouldn't be, I'm just saying you've got guys like Patricio Frede who are, you know, champions in two different weight classes at the same time. Maybe Bellator's best fighter ever. If anyone should be the poster boy, it's probably him. But neither here nor there. The dude is apparently going to test free agency. Here's what he says. Quote, I think I'm a guy who could go to one championship and finish my trilogy with Eddie Alvarez. Or imagine me fighting guys like Justin Gaethje or Dustin Poirier or putting on fights of the year. And I do think I'm the best guy to solve the puzzle of Khabib Nurmagomedov. Um, Now, he does still have very nice things to say about Scott Coker and Bellator and everything else. He says, quote, I would love nothing more than to finish my career and retire as a Bellator fighter. And I've told that to Scott Coker. But the simple fact is they have a business to run with checks and balances. And I know my wife and son deserve to be taken care of. And I have a calling in life that might require me to go elsewhere. Bellator has taken care of me and I've taken care of them. It's been the perfect storm of a symbiotic relationship. Them having an asset, 
that they were not willing to lose, and me being the situation with the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Now, as just a thought experiment in real time, let me pull up his record, right? Um, just to give you a sense of things, but that's not the reason why I want to pull up the record per se. So he currently stands at 20-5. and five. He won his last fight against Sydney Outlaw at Bellator 237. So, just as a bit of a thought experiment, what are the Bellator... What were the purses for Bellator 237? Uh, let's see. Let's see. Salaries. Uh, okay. We don't exactly have any that I can see because it could come from Hawaii, in which case it would be hard to find. So then let's look at Bellator 221. Maybe they have some. That was the fight he had against Patricio Freire where he lost. Um, let's see. Okay. Well, let's see. Bellator 220. Bellator 220. This is not him. This is Rory McDonald. McDonald made 200,000 no win bonus. John Fitch made 140. Benson Henderson made 100. Ilima Lee McFarley made 75. I'm trying to find exactly where to have it. Oh, Bellator 212 might have one because that was in New York. Let me find that real quick. 212. So this would be, I guess, part of the contract he was on. Um, man, uh, I'm not sure that they have it. I can't find any information on his salaries. Nothing that comes up. Let's see. Fighter pay. Because that would tell us where he's at. If he's making around 200... Oh, here we go. Bellator 212. No, that's UFC 212. So that won't work. You know what? I'm just... here. here, here what did Ryan, uh, Ryan Bader make at Bellator 199? Let's see. At, at, at that, he made 300K to beat Muhammad Lawal. Muhammad Lawal made 150K. You don't really see purses a whole lot bigger in Bellator unless it's like Fedor. Uh, bigger than two or three hundred k. Now I'm guessing that Chandler is somewhere in that ballpark, um, but there's just no way to know. The reason why I bring this up is because if you're if you're Scott Coker, how much do you really want to pay a guy like Michael Chandler, who has a fight coming up against Benson Henderson, I believe, which will be a title eliminator. So if he wants, he can go and get. Another belt after that, potentially, if he can get the rematch against Patricio. On the other hand, he might be saying to himself, maybe I can make more money in the UFC. But here's the thing about Michael Chandler. These are his losses in, since 2013, his only losses. A loss to Eddie Alvarez, which, by the way, I thought he won that one. It was a split decision, but okay. Two to Will Brooks, the weird one to Brent Primus, and then the weird one to Patricio. Not a weird one, the, the straightforward one to Patricio. I think he could give really good fights to the top UFC lightweights, but at 33, I don't know how much he's able to actually competitively win those contests. Now, all of this could be negotiation in saying, I don't want to go anywhere else, but I want you to pay me more because maybe he feels like at 33, he's got a few years left and then that'll be that. I, I don't, I don't, ex I, there's a lot of different factors in play here. But if you look at Bellator purses, they typically, you know, they're for the top fighters, somewhere between one, two, three, maybe four hundred thousand. Fedor might be a little bit different because he's Fedor, but it's never exactly clear. And so, uh, I, I and when they do come out, I never see them that much higher.
Um, uh, so just keep that in mind. Always a little bit weird. How much did Patricio make at Bellator 228? He made, yeah, 200K. Flat. No, no win, no, no show and win, just flat. Gigard Musasi, 150. Leota Machida, 150. See what I'm saying? It's usually in that range. He might be thinking, there's an opportunity here for me to make more money. I'm not sure if that's true because you'd have to get the pay-per-view money. And maybe it's all for negotiation. I don't really know. But that'll be an interesting one to watch. The Luke Thomas Show is your one-stop destination for MMA. If you're in a UFC title fight and you get finished in the first round, yo, you lost. Sports. I cheer for loser teams. As well as pop culture and entertainment. No matter what Star Wars comes out, I'll just find a way to like it. No. The Luke Thomas Show, weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. On your home for combat sports. Sirius XM Fight Nation, Channel 156, and the Sirius XM app. Now included free for most subscribers. Well, I don't want to give uh, nothing but bad news, and I don't want to give nothing but good news. I want to give a little bit of a mix. Now, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, has erroneously stated that this has now been approved by the FDA for um, prescription use, which the FDA immediately came out and said was not true. But there is some good news I would like to share with you. Now, understand, this has not necessarily gone into uh, production yet. For the purposes I'm about to state that it's being used for, but that there might be some developments in terms of what's happening here. So, here's uh, here's what I'm here's here's what I'm seeing. Right, there are these projections from epidemiologists that this thing is going to be in circulation for 18 months to two years. That's just not possible. I mean, the economy would just simply collapse if you did that. But if you don't, if you don't do that, then a bunch of people die. So you're like, well, what are we going to do here? If we're all stay indoors, no one dies, but then the economy makes things even worse. If we all go outside and the economy thrives, then we all, not all, but a bunch of people die. So like, what are we going to do here? Well, the answer is we're probably just going to buy ourselves some time because a vaccine won't be here for some time. But what seems like there might be is some kind of effective treatments in the interim. Now, that's not a guarantee that I am making to you, but it seems like they're making some decent progress. So, there is something called hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine. It's an old malaria drug, and it turns out that there's been a couple of studies done that have shown it to be pretty effective. So, this is from the New York Post. A drug developed over a half a century ago to treat malaria is showing signs that could also help cure COVID-19 when it's paired with an antibiotic. Hydroxychloroquine, sold under the brand name Palinkel, or I'm not sure if you pronounce it that way, uh, and also used to treat arthritis and other ailments, was determined to be effective in killing the deadly bug in laboratory experiments, citing findings published March 9th in the Clinical Infectious Diseases Journal. Quote, we predict that the drug has a good potential to combat the disease, says the author's study, which was in the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Wuhan in a letter published in Cell Discovery on Wednesday, according to the report. Now, French physician researchers have completed a largely successful clinical trial using the drug, approved for use in the U.S. in 1955, to treat confirmed COVID-19 patients, according to a study published Wednesday. A total of 36 patients, including 20 treated individuals and 16 infected controls, were enrolled in a study uh, and an infectious disease expert from the Institute Hospitalo Universitaire in Marcel. I'm sure I'm pronouncing every word of that incorrectly. 
Marseille. The treated group was given 600 milligrams of palankel each day. The researchers found that 50% of the treated group turned from positive to negative for the virus by the third day, and by the day six, that figure was up to 70%. Of the 20 test patients, six who were treated with both palankel and the antibiotic azithromycin showed impressive results, with five testing negative at day three. All six of them tested negative at day six. Quote, despite its small sample size, our survey shows that hydroxychloroquine treatment is significantly associated with viral load reduction disappearance in COVID-19 patients, and its effect is reinforced by uh, azithromycin. Meanwhile, researchers found that a pill containing two HIV drugs touted as a potential treatment for COVID-19 was not effective. A Chinese test pa- uh, a test of Chinese patients with a severe case of coronavirus found that the 99% who received something called Caletra, a cocktail of Lopinavir and Ritonavir, did not do any better than the 100 who received standard care. So the, the bad news is, is that some forms of, what do you want to call it here, um, um, treatments, these antiviral drugs, appear to have so far not shown a ton of promise. Uh, on the other hand, there are some other ones that are continuing to show problems. This is what I think is actually kind of happening here. Because no one's going to stay indoors for, um, you know, three months. It's just not going to happen, right? Uh, this is just not reality. But I'll say this. Um, I think we're going to, I think we're going to find a intermediating, a, 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 I think here's what I'm expecting. You want to know what, what I feel? And again, take this with about the biggest grain of salt you could ever find in your life. Right. But I kind of feel like two, three months, we're going to be indoors, something like this. There might be subsequent waves of outbreaks. I don't really know. But I think what we're doing is we're buying ourselves some time. We're buying ourselves some time so that we can get a treatment that is good enough that if you could deploy it en masse and you still had these outbreaks, you wouldn't get rid of the outbreaks per se, but you would just mitigate the worst effects of them. Right? Now, part of this is you got to have more tests of COVID-19 because, hello, you got to know who's got it. But if you can figure out who's got it, and you've got these other treatments. Let's say this hydroclox or hydro. Uh, God, how do you pronounce this word? What was the word again? This um, hydroxychloroquine. If that ends up being what some of these people are suggesting that it could be, then we'll be in pretty good shape. We'll be in pretty good shape because obviously it's still a deadly disease and a virus that has been in our lifetime, something we've never really seen before, but people are doing their best to find some kind of antidote to it, which isn't to say that you won't get it. Like a vaccine will just prevent you from getting it, right? That's what it would do. This won't do that, but this will just make the treatment, uh, you know, that you're basically good within a week. And I think that's our probably our best hope for the time being. And then maybe in a year or two, if we're really lucky, we can get a vaccine so that if this ever comes back, um, you know, we'll have we'll have a much better answer at that point. I'm also hoping that you know this is a wake up call for world governments that um, you know we just have to be more prepared for this kind of stuff. 
that having a pandemic response element built into executive leadership and uh, having the resources and the nimbleness uh, required to quickly both answer the call when the virus potentially threatens to be uh, an outbreak mode or to anticipate threats that might be happening, I think we can all pretty much agree now it's pretty critical, not just for the United States, but for every kind of advanced civilization, right? Um, so, so I just want to be clear about this. I do not know in any capacity whatsoever if hydroxychloroquine is going to be the savior that in a couple of months we can deploy and this is the thing that's going to work. It might be the case. It might not be the case. I, honest to God, do not know. But I want to keep you uh, updated because the results look at this juncture um, from what is being publicly reported, uh, pretty good news. Pretty good news. I think that's going to be our best thing. Because, man, here's the reality, dude. Who's going to stay inside? Who's going to stay inside for six months, a year, 18 months? you got people staying inside for 18 hours losing their mind. you think people are going to stay inside for 18 months? It's just not realistic. And the damage economically would be overwhelming. I think at that point, people would just tolerate a certain amount of death in society, to be perfectly honest with you. That's, that's the way I look at this. So well, all we can do is let's take some extreme measures. I would consider the way we're living fairly extreme these days, folks. Let's take some extreme measures. And then from there, what we can do is we can find a way to buy some time to come up with a solution that will ultimately put us in a position where uh, we can do you know, the kinds of research to come up with some kind of treatment cocktail um, that ultimately will put us in a position to to get out of this mess that we're in because Lord knows it is extensive. Uh, one more note on this, if I can, about the effect it's having on restaurants, man, my family closed their restaurant Saturday. Can you believe it? Like I, they were all kind of sad about it about a month ago, but you know, there's a big chapter in our life that's ending. They didn't have to close it because it was going out of business. It had done the best business that it ever had. They just really didn't like working in the restaurant industry. It was just a lot on them personally in terms of what it was required to do. Right. I mean, I think they liked working in the job, but people all say, oh, if I was rich, I'd own a bar. And then you talk to bar owners and they're like, yeah, don't do that. Don't, don't ever do that. Um, but okay. Point being is this. Now that this thing is here, they're like, boy, I guess we closed right on time. I guess we closed right on time. So keep that in mind. Now, there's this other piece of news that as long as this goes, this is going to be really, really painful. Restaurants have announced mass layoffs uh, in New York City, and you can imagine other places as well. Quote, the coronavirus's death grip on the five boroughs is choking the life out of many city businesses, writes the New York Post, with a slew of establishments announcing significant layoffs Wednesday. My buddy has a restaurant in Brooklyn. He says he can afford to pay the staff a week, maybe two, and then that is it. Restaurants have been particularly hard hit, hamstrung by the first would-be customer reticence to hit the streets for fear of the contagion, and then by a Monday packed among governors of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut to bar sit-down dining. There are still some takeout spots, but not a whole lot. The cuts uh, by the culinary empire were forced Wednesday uh, and then resulted in approximately 2,000 workers being laid off, representing about 80% of the total workforce. The cuts included both hourly and salaried workers at restaurants and corporate offices and were necessitated by, quote, a near-complete elimination of revenue. I mean, look, I don't know what one's politics are, and I really don't want to get into it at a time like this. But here's what I'll just say, just doing the basic math on all of this. You know who's going to need a bailout? 
big businesses like airlines, small businesses like restaurants, and then the average Joe. In short, everybody. Everybody is going to need a bailout, and some places are going to be harder hit than others. So while I'm certainly sad to see my family's restaurant after nearly 20 years being in business deciding to close up shop because they just didn't want to do it anymore, um, the timing for them worked out kind of nicely, to be perfectly honest. But for a lot of people who, a buddy of mine, just opened up a gym in Texas. Now what are you supposed to do? They're only allowing in nine people a day. Can you believe it? So it's going to be a situation to follow. A lot of industries are going to get the crunch. We're going to follow them, the industries, as they do to see how they're handling things and what solutions might be coming down the pipeline. We've got some more guests to that effect tomorrow, by the way, so stay tuned. But um, an interesting situation nonetheless. Thanks for listening. Catch The Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L. Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.